All right, let's take our Bibles out. Let's turn to the book of Matthew, the book of Matthew, chapter number 13. And uh, again, be in prayer for Pastor and his family while he's gone. We'll look forward to him being back this uh, Sunday. And um, last service of 2000, or 2020, 2020. And um, <clears throat> looking forward to getting this year over. Although, honestly, like I know a lot of people are saying, oh, this is the worst year ever. And um, I don't know, I can... Personally, I think I can think of some years that I think were a little worse. I mean, now this is definitely an unusual year, and um, but I know a lot of people have been uh, hurt this year. A lot of people have been uh, affected greatly, and I, all I have to say to that is um, I'm thankful that I know God. I'm thankful that I've been given a good heritage. I'm thankful I've got something to hope in other than this world, and um, I know they're sending out government checks uh, soon, but... Uh, honestly, I'm thankful that uh, we don't have to trust in even government to get us what we need. And um, so uh, I, I'm thankful that uh, of, the, of the upbringing and the salvation that I've received, and uh, I trust that you are as well. Uh, Matthew chapter number 13, and I'm going to start with verse number 54. Matthew chapter 13 and verse number 54. Um, I, I want to preach a truth that I hope will, it can help us at any time, but I know getting ready to go into the new year, that brings new challenges, that brings new opportunities, uh, but it brings new, uh, new growth as well, and I hope I can be a help to us. Nothing, nothing you know, amazingly uh, you know, new, obviously. It's just a reminder of something that we all need to be reminded from time to time out of Matthew chapter number 13. The Bible says in verse number 54, and when he was coming to his own country... He taught them in their synagogue, insomuch that they were astonished, and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom in these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary, and his brethren James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man all these things? And they were offended in him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. Verse number 58 here, what a sad verse here. And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Uh, I remind us here, we all know the truth here, Jesus is from Nazareth. Nazareth, no doubt, was a, was a small town. Uh, it was not a prestigious town like we would say Jerusalem and uh, some of the other big cities you would say like um, you know, the, even some of the, the cities that were not of the nation of Israel. There are certain cities that have a great uh, significance, but Nazareth, other than being the, the hometown of Christ, was not uh, necessarily a massive place of prestige, but it was still a place uh, of fame. I mean, it's where the Savior grew up. It's where he uh, was from. I mean, he was born in Bethlehem, but he was from Nazareth. And uh, I want to bring a message here out of this text here. Uh, with this thought in mind, when a place of fame becomes a place of shame. When a place of fame becomes a place of shame. Heavenly Father, thank you for this, mo this evening. Thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to come to church. And Lord, I pray that you just uh, be with us here this evening. Lord, uh, you know the year we've been through, Lord, it's, ha it's not been without its challenges. It's not been without its difficulties. Uh, it's not been without its even frustrations, Lord, but uh, Lord, you know, the new year holds new things for us, and no doubt there will be challenges, and there will be difficulties, and there will be things that may even frustrate us, Lord, but uh, the truth is we grow through those things. We uh, strengthen our faith through these things, and Lord, I pray that you'll help us here to realize there's a truth here 
It's not new. It's been there the entire time from uh, the beginning of the world. But, Lord, the truth is still true here today as it was in Jesus' day. Uh, Lord, I pray you'll speak to our hearts here this evening. Give me your powers, I preach in Jesus' name. Amen. When a place of fame becomes a place of shame. All across this world are many places where man has done and accomplished many great things. Many of these places, as small and as obscure as they may be, have become famous or infamous by the works that certain men have done. Places earn reputations based on the works that men do there. I remind us here that we understand this truth. A place can be famous or it can be infamous by the works that men do. In Charleston, a suburb of Boston, Massachusetts, is a marking signifying the beginning of Paul Revere's famous midnight ride. That famous call that he called out, the British are coming. Uh, I mean, it's a famous landmark. It's a famous, oh, a well-known town. In the harbor outside of Baltimore, Maryland, is a buoy that is floating in the exact spot where Francis Scott Key penned the words to the Star-Spangled Banner, our national anthem. I mean, what a famous uh, song that is. It's a song that strikes uh, courage and a song that strikes hope and a song that strikes encouragement in the heart of anybody who sings it, let alone hears it. Uh, and there is a buoy that marks that spot. In Charleston Harbor in Charleston, South Carolina, is a fort called Fort Sumter, uh, known in American history as a spot where uh, the South began the Civil War and began their demise. And uh, uh, Brother Corazon says amen to that. No, there's a, there's a fort there that signifies the first shots of the Civil War where they were fired. Uh, a famous spot, a, a spot of great uh, fame. And uh, we find these different places. In Diamond, M Missouri, I don't know if anybody's heard of Diamond, Missouri, and uh, no diamonds are not found in Diamond, Missouri. But there lies a monument dedicated to George Washington Carver, the famous peanut man. The man that was responsible for discovering all the different uses and all the different abilities of the peanut. It marks his birthplace and memorializes his many accomplishments. I think of another place in Kill Devil Hills, North Carolina, uh, is a monument dedicated to Wilbur and Orville Wright as they famously made their first successful sustained powered flight in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. You see, all these places that man sets up mem memorials and monuments and markers signifying the different things that have taken place, they take these obscure places, these places that quite honestly, unless you and I were from there, unless you and I visited there or took a vacation there, would mean absolutely nothing to us. I mean, there would be nothing significant about these cities. Yet here they are, and they, they, stand the test, uh, they stand in history as a place where great people have come from. People have done great things. They become places of fame. But I also think of places that are known in history as infamous places. We think of a place called Auschwitz in, Germ in Austria, where it's known uh, throughout time as a, a great place of death and destruction and just pure evil, where Hitler and his German forces just ruthlessly murdered uh, the Jews and anybody that resisted uh, their fascist ways. We think of different places such as uh, in, in the Eastern Bloc of Germany and Russia where communism for so long held uh, its iron fist and there's different places throughout this world that are infamous. I mean, the list could go on and on. And these places are known throughout history 
uh, for the things that men have done, but the things that men have accomplished there. Uh, they, uh, they are known by what has taken place. But there is a place that is known for something other than great works. It is a place that is known for the works that were not done in its boundaries. It is known as a place that is known as uh, what could have been place. It is a place that falls short of its potential. It is a place called Nazareth. You see, we look at all these different places that I just rattled off, and a list could be made that extends uh, far beyond the list that I put together uh, that would just pale in comparison to the list that I presented here uh, of different places that man has done things in, that man has accomplished things in. Oh, but there is a place on earth that far blows out the significance of that, that, that could have had great things done, but it's forever known as a place that could have been. It's forever known as a place that man, uh, that the God man could have done something, and that place is called Nazareth. You see, uh, when a place of fame becomes a place of shame, Jesus comes to his hometown. It is the place where he grew up. It is the place where he was well known. No doubt people know Jesus all throughout Nazareth. I mean, it was not a, he was not a stranger to them. He was the carpenter's son. They knew who he was. Surely Jesus comes to his hometown. And picture this, he's been doing miracles all across the region. He's been doing miracles all across uh, the area, all across the land. He is well known. Picture all that he's done. He's healed the sick, those that are blind and cannot see. They've heard the stories of how he's touched their eyes and made them see. Those that are lame and cannot walk on their own, he has simply spoken the word and they've risen up and picked up their bed and walked. And they've heard the great stories of what he's done. They've heard of those uh, who could not hear and they've heard how he's touched their ears and suddenly they hear. He, they hear the story of how he's raised the dead to life. How someone who had died has suddenly been brought back to life. And oh, picture all the things that he's done. He's turned the water into wine. I don't know about you, but uh, you know, uh, I've never seen someone do that, and you haven't either. Uh, and if you have, uh, you had a pretty wild dream there. Uh, but Jesus here, he turns water into wine. It wasn't that he added, you know, sometimes these people that, that try to disprove the Bible make it seem like, you know, Jesus kind of slipped a little Kool-Aid packet in there or, you know, do something like that. Oh, there had to be an explanation for that. That's impossible. And they, but friend, Jesus literally changed the water to wine. He did not slip something into that to make it change color. He did not add a Kool-Aid packet to that and make it taste like uh, grape juice. No, Jesus spoke the word and Jesus, I don't know exactly how he did, but he, he did something and it changed it from water into wine. Oh, and picture Nazareth, those who have seen Jesus grow up and those have, who have witnessed him grow up. I mean, to them, he was just another boy. Though there might have been something different from him than others. I'm, I'm sure there was. I mean, he was the son of God. But to them, I mean, they knew him as the carpenter's son. And all of a sudden, he leaves and they hear the miracles that he does. Picture as he comes back to his hometown. I don't know about you, but my hometown holds a dear spot in my heart. And when I go back to my hometown, uh, you know, I, uh, sometimes I, I have, you know, and I'm a, I have a big imagination. I have uh, dreams of grandeur sometimes and uh, things of that nature of, man, what if God called me back to my hometown? 
and I'd love to build a church there. I'd love to reach uh, those that I know and those that I love. And uh, picture Jesus as he comes back to his hometown. I think for perhaps he thought, you know, hey, uh, they'll receive me. Now, I know he knew everything, uh, but think about this. I wonder if Jesus was saving his best works for his hometown. I wonder if Jesus wanted to do great things in the city of Nazareth. I mean, the place he grew up, the place that knew him, the place that watched him, the place that, uh, that saw him grow up. I wonder if he was saving even greater works for his hometown. Jesus enters the gates of Nazareth. Jesus uh, walks in, and all of Nazareth had to watch up to this point, Jesus doing the miracles elsewhere. Finally, Jesus has come home. Surely Jesus wanted to do great and mighty works in his childhood home, but he could not. You think about that. How sad, how tragic, how, uh, how absolutely uh, sad that Jesus comes to his hometown. Jesus comes to the place where he grew up, They've witnessed from, from abroad, and they've witnessed from afar and heard the great things he's done, and surely he wants to do great works, but the Bible says he did not many works there. I don't know about you, but Nazareth's unbelief testifies to all of us here today two things here, the pride of man, the pride of man. The Bible does not tell us exactly exactly uh, what, they, what they reject and all that, other than the fact that they had unbelief. I don't know if they looked at Jesus and said, oh, this is the carpenter's son. There ain't nothing special about him. He's just a carpenter's son. And uh, the Bible says that because of their unbelief, he did not many works there. You know why man has unbelief here today? You know why lost man won't believe? You know why a saved man won't believe in the promises of God? You know why even we as Christians, we get plagued sometimes with unbelief? I'll tell you why, the pride of man. Sometimes man's too proud to admit that he cannot do some things. Man is too proud to admit that he does not have the answer. Man is too proud that, to admit that God is greater than him and has all power and Man will sit there and say, I ain't going to trust in God. I'm not going to believe in God. And man has unbelief. It's not just the lost man. It's the saved man. We all struggle with unbelief. It testifies, Nazareth's unbelief testifies all of us of the pride of man. But secondly, it testifies to us the stubbornness of man. The stubbornness of man. How stubborn do you have to be for Jesus to go abroad, do all that he's done out there, and then come back to his hometown and you absolutely, they absolutely refuse to believe on him. I don't know what more it would have taken. You hear people sometimes say, well, I believe in God if he would just do this, or if he would, man, if, if, if God would just raise this person from the dead, I believe in him. Well, let's think about Nazareth here. No, you wouldn't. If you can't believe in God with what he's done, you won't believe in God if he did mighty works in front of you. And what is that picture? It pictures the stubbornness of man. Man, having seen and heard, uh, whether it was from afar or up close, the very things that they saw and heard, and yet they still chose to not believe in God, pictures the, presents the stubbornness of man to us. Nazareth's unbelief testifies to all of us when a place of fame turns into a place of shame. Now, I've got three things here that I just want to hit briefly. Uh, nothing new, but I want to remind us here because you know what the truth is? We're going to be put to the fire, so to speak, with our faith in the new year. Uh, pastor's got great vision, and you know, the truth is God's got great vision for you and I as Christians, and God's going to bring things into our life that's going to stretch us, 
that's going to uh, strengthen us, and it's going to cause us to have to use our faith. It's going to cause us to have to strengthen our faith. And if we're not careful, unbelief will, be, will do the same thing to us that it did to Nazareth. I mean, think about it, a place of fame. Is there anything more famous than being a Christian? Think about it. We've received Christ. The world looks at us and says, you're a Christian. I mean, there's something famous that goes along with being called a Christian, and the world looks at us, but how sad that someone that bears the name of Christ, that bears the name Christian, can turn into something of a shame through unbelief. I've got three things here, very briefly, that'll, that, that present to us what unbelief does uh, here today. Number one, unbelief condemns sinners. Unbelief condemns sinners. The Bible says in John chapter 3 and verse number 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believed in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, God sent Jesus Christ into this world to die for your sins and for my sins and for the whole world's sins. He died for sinners. The Bible says he didn't come to make a righteous man whole, but to make an unrighteous man whole. And the Bible tells us that God sent his only begotten son to pay for the sins of the whole world. Now, I trust everyone's saved here today, but perhaps there's someone who's been struggling with that. Perhaps there's someone here that maybe, maybe even playing a game. I don't know. I'm not trying to cause anybody to doubt their salvation, but that's between you and God. But you know where you stand with God. And can I remind us here today, even if you're saved, unbelief condemns sinners. Oh, we say, what sends a man to hell? And certainly it's his sin. But the ultimate thing that sends man to hell is his unbelief. You see, yes, sin condemns us, and sin uh, causes us to be unclean in God's sight, but God has made a way of escape for every man, and it's the sin of unbelief that sends lost man to hell. Belief is what saves, but unbelief is what condemns. And friend, let me remind us here today, unbelief condemns sinners. Revelation 21 and verse number 8, that famous verse that we often use when we're witnessing to people, the Bible says, but the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. You see, God tagged in there unbelieving, the unbelieving. You see, unbelief is a tragic sin. Unbelief is a wicked sin. Unbelief is a serious sin in God's eyes. And number one here today, unbelief condemns sinners. Salvation is not just believing that there is a God or just believing in God. It is believing in what God says and wants us to understand. You see, a lot of people, you witness to them and you talk to them and say, I believe in God. Great, that's, you got to believe in God, but that is not salvation. Or they'll say, uh, you know, I, be, I believe in God. I, I believe him. I pray to God. I, I do all these things. And that is not belief. That is not salvation. Salvation is when we not just believe that there is a God or believing in God, but it's when we take that step and say, I believe in what God has said. I'm a sinner. I deserve hell. But thanks be to Christ, I have a way of escape, and I believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ, and I receive him as my Savior. You see, unbelief condemns sinners. Hey, Christian, uh, you've got your salvation settled. You've got your salvation secure. But let's not forget, there's a lot of people out there that they don't have that settled. 
we got to remember here, unbelief condemns sinners. Number two, I want us to be reminded here, unbelief constricts saints. Unbelief constricts saints. Turn over to the book of Hebrews if you, if you don't mind. Hebrews chapter number three. Hebrews chapter number three. And I'm going to read the verses 12 through 19. Hebrews chapter number three. The Bible says in verse number 12, Take heed, brethren. Look who God's speaking to through the uh, Apostle Paul, the brethren, those that are saved, the saints of God. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. You see, even Christians can get to a point where they don't believe in God. They have an evil heart of unbelief and they depart. I don't know, I don't think that necessarily means that they recant the faith and they go to live with him, but you can get to a point in your Christian life where you leave the things of God where you know you're supposed to be, where you know you're supposed to be doing, in departing from the living God. Verse 13, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is said today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Oh, we use that verse sometimes to show a lost man, hey, you can't enter into heaven through unbelief. you got to believe in Jesus Christ. But hey, look who it's being spoken to, the, the brethren, those that are saved. And I believe what God's trying to get us to realize here is unbelief constricts saints. You think about that boa constrictor as he gets his, uh, his, uh, his body wrapped around the, the, the body of its victim, whether it's an animal or a, uh, even a human what he does is he gets wrapped around and he begins to constrict. He begins to tighten. He begins to, 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 to increase the pressure and crush the very life out of that victim. And notice here what unbelief does. It constricts the saints. You see, God wants the child of God to grow. God wants the child of God to move forward by faith. God wants the child of God to do great things for him. Picture Jesus as he goes to his hometown no doubt he wanted to do great things. No doubt he wanted to do great works. But unbelief constricts. Unbelief chokes. Unbelief pulls the life out of a person. It constricts the saints. Hey, friend, what is it in your, in your life that God wants you to do? I, I believe God we will never get to the point where we can honestly say, I, I've honestly done everything God wants me to do. I'm doing everything I know God wants me to do. We're sinners we all fall short. We all struggle. But we ought to look at ourselves and say, hey, what am I not doing now that I need to be doing, that I should be doing? What is being holding me back through my own unbelief? What does God want me to do that causes me to have to step out by faith and strengthen my faith and grow in my faith? You see, unbelief constricts saints. How many Christians all throughout the ages, it could be said of them, hey, they entered not into exactly what God wanted them to do. They, they fulfilled not what God wanted them to do because of unbelief. 
how many Christians God's come maybe to a young man and said, hey, I want you to preach. I want you to be a missionary. I want you to be a, a, a gospel preacher for me. And how many a young man has said, oh, I can't do that. I, I, I don't have what it takes or I can't do that. I don't have the abilities or I just don't believe I can do that. I, I, I'm not a people person or I can't talk in front of people. And because of unbelief, it holds them back and they'll never go on to do what they could do for God. Why? Not because God doesn't want to use them, but because of unbelief. How many a, a, a Christian lady, God wants to use them, maybe in a Christian school, to be a teacher, maybe to be a pastor's wife or a preacher's wife, or to do something special for him, to be a missionary, to, to serve him in some great capacity. And because of unbelief, it constricts them and it holds them back. And when they could go on to do something great for God, it holds them back and it constricts them from ever entering into what God wants them to do with their life. You see, unbelief is a terrible thing. Unbelief is a tragic thing. Unbelief constricts saints. Number one, we saw unbelief condemns sinners. Number two, we saw that unbelief constricts saints. But number three, my last point I'll bring here this evening, unbelief confines sanctuaries. Unbelief confines sanctuaries. Think about this. We all, as the body of Christ here in this church, uh, the, the saved brethren of this church, make up the church. Yes, we, we have to give account for our own individual life. Yes, we all have to uh, do make sure we as individuals are growing in our faith and living by faith as individuals, but as a whole, we make up the church. And make no mistake about it, you and I, uh, if we decide through unbelief that we just can't, do this, or we just can't do that. Did you know unbelief confines sanctuaries? Oh, church after church after church. No doubt God has wanted to do great things with, and God has had great uh, things for each and every church to do. But how many churches, not just because of one individual or two individuals, but as a whole looks at it and says, we can't do that, or I just don't see it, or I just don't think we can. Think about the nation of Israel. God said, enter into the promised land. And they said as a whole, we can't do it. Why? They listened to some voices. They listened to some unbelieving voices. Oh, there were those that believed, but there were those who had unbelief, and they had a decision to make. Do I believe in God's promises? Do I have faith in what God's given us? Or do I choose to hear the voices of doubt, the voices of unbelief? And friend, they chose the wrong path. And hey, we as a church are going to be at multiple times in our history, at multiple times in our, uh, in, our, in our timeline. We're going to be at a crossroads where we have to decide as a church, do we follow the path of faith? Do we take the step of faith? Do we have faith and just believe that God wants to do great things? Or do we believe that our greatest days are of yesteryear? Or do we have doubts that, hey, God just can't do it in 2021? You know, we live in the COVID era, so to speak, and a lot of people are saying, hey, it just can't be done no more. Things have changed. We have the new normal now. We better get used to this because just things can't be done the way they used to be. And I understand that things are tight with people. I understand that, uh, you know, things are hard on people and people are scared and people are afraid. But hey, when did we ever get to the point where we allowed our fears to keep us from moving forward by faith? 
You see, faith is not the absence of fear. Faith is moving forward in spite of our fears. And hey, too many churches, God has wanted to do great things, and God has put great things before them, and all he said was, enter in. All he said was, take the next step of faith. All he said was, hey, just trust me. Believe that I can still do great things. Hey, you've heard of the great things I've done in the past, but I want to do great things now, God says. God says, hey, you've heard of the things I've done in the Bible, but I still want to do great things now. And how many churches and how many Christians, like Nazareth, a place of fame, how many churches have had great things done in their history? They've been known as a place of fame. Hey, did you hear the great things God did with that church in yesteryear? But they become a place of shame. Why? Is it because God's done with them? No. Is it because God did his work and he said, all right, I'm done with that church. Time for them to disappear off the face of the earth and go into history books of, of church history. No, because of unbelief. You see, nothing can destroy the church of God other than unbelief. And unbelief confines sanctuaries. I don't know all that pastor has uh, for the church moving forward. I don't know all that God wants for us to do in the days moving forward, but I do know this, it's going to require faith. It's going to require us to get outside of our bubble, to get outside of our comfort zone and say, hey, do I want to be satisfied with, the, with what God has already done? Do I want to be satisfied with what God has, has allowed me to, to do for him up to this point? Or do I want to see God do greater things? Do I want to stretch my faith and strengthen my faith and see God do greater things? It's going to require some faith on our part and unbelief confines sanctuaries. How sad. Jesus, he's been doing some great works up to this point. Oh, he comes to the Nazareth, and I think in his mind, he's like, and now granted, he's, he's God. He knows what's going to happen. He knew what was going to take place. Uh, but sometimes I wonder, part of me wonders, if there was a part of him that said, man, I, if only they knew the works that I want to do with them. If only they knew the miracles that I've been saving for them. I mean, they, had to, they got to experience me growing up. I was just a carpenter's son to them. Oh, but wait until they see the works that I want to do in their midst. Oh, they've up to this point been seeing it from a distance. They've been hearing it from others. But now the opportunity has come for them to see it, for them to experience it. And how sad the Bible says he did not. Many mighty works there. Why? Because of unbelief. Not because he had no more power. Not because he just didn't want to. Because of their unbelief. Friend, let it be a reminder to us here today. Unbelief condemns sinners. That's what sends a man to hell. It's not anything else other than the sin of unbelief. I trust you're saved here today, but if you're not, get that settled. Uh, number two, unbelief constricts saints. You'll never grow, on, grow up to be what you ought to be as a Christian as long as you're holding on to your unbelief and you can't put it aside to say, hey, yet, do I have my doubts? Absolutely. Do I have my fears? Absolutely. A am I scared half the time? Absolutely. But since when did that and when did my feelings ever dictate whether I keep on moving forward by faith? Unbelief constricts saints. But last of all, unbelief confines sanctuaries. This church will do great things or just stay what it is based on our faith, and our level of unbelief. You know, the truth is, God wants to do great things in your life, in my life, in everyone's life. 
uh, lost and saved. God wants lost man to be saved. God wants to do great things with every saint. God wants to do great things with every church. But one thing holds it back, and that's unbelief. When a place of fame, or when a place of fame goes to a place of shame, hey, we have the name Christian upon us. I mean, I know the world persecutes the Christian, but let's be honest, we really don't have a lot to complain about. I'm, not, I'm glad I'm not walking around look, dodging swords, cutting my head off, and uh, people trying to chain me up and stone me. And I'm glad we don't got a Nero running around catching me and dipping me in some paraffin and making me a human torch. You know, we really don't have it that hard. Uh, but, you know, let's be honest here. Uh, I know we, we face persecution, but, um, you know, God's work goes on, and we've got to have faith, and we've got to keep moving on by faith. Don't let unbelief uh, take you away. Don't let unbelief keep you from moving forward. You have a name above all names. You have the name Christ on you. You're a Christian. Don't turn that into a name of shame. Don't turn, that, uh, don't turn this place into a place of shame where we look back and say, man, the great things that God has done in the past but that's where it ends. Let's go on and do great things for God. And let's stay that place of fame where when this world looks at and says, hey, man, I don't get it. I mean, 2020 just happened. Who knows what 2021 brings? Governments hand out checks like candy. Everyone's scared and everyone is hurting and financially and emotionally and mentally. But what is it with those Christians? What is it with that place? They're growing. They're walking by faith. And that is what will capture the attention of this world. That is what will capture God's attention when we say as Christians, hey, we're not going to allow our unbelief to hold us back. We're going to move forward by faith. When a place of fame becomes a place of shame. Heavenly